Okay, we are back to podcast. First Corinthians, First Corinthians chapter number one. I don't know about you, but I enjoyed <clears throat> First Samuel. I enjoyed it so much that we're going to come back to Second Samuel after we get through First Corinthians. First Corinthians won't take near as long. I'm thinking, well, if you factor in Bible study, the fact that we do Bible study in person, so that's a night of podcast we won't do. <clears throat> Probably a couple months in in First Corinthians, maybe not that long, but because uh, there'll be probably times where we do two chapters at once. Um, I doubt this will be one of those times. But um, I enjoyed First Samuel. First Samuel is almost like watching a good movie. <laughs> really, I mean, it's it's just uh, the drama that unfolds. The just it's so much in that in that book. And the beauty of it is it's not a movie, it's the Word of God, and it we apply it to our lives for our betterment. And so that brings us to 1 Corinthians. I, I felt that we needed to cover some New Testament after spending so long in, um, in the Old Testament during Bible studies. I like to rotate them and um, <clears throat> to give you a good grasp of, of all you know, places in the scripture to show you how the Old Testament has the stories that basically back up the New Testament principles and doctrines. And so the book that we're coming approaching is a very doctrinal heavy book. Um, Corinthians, Corinthians, 1 Corinthians. Corinth was a, is a very large, it was a very wealthy, it was a business type city. It was a city like New York or a city like Chicago, or one of your Philadelphia, one of your major metropolises, Atlanta, Houston. Uh, it's a wealthy city. Uh, it was known for its learning, very educated people, and, and of course, Greek philosophy. Um, it was a very wicked city. We see that in most cities are wicked. I mean, that's just, it's just how it is. I mean, I, I you know, I'm... If you study the Bible, not only the Bible, you look at the world. <clears throat> People in cities, uh, they they tend to migrate. You get all kinds of um, different viewpoints and religions that come together. Um, pornography, um, you know, indulgence into into you know drugs and <clears throat> excuse me. Um, prostitution, gambling, you know, shootings. It goes on in cities. But then at the same time, you've got people that are very highly educated in cities. People that go there for work, you know, go there for uh, financial gain. They've been educated in the world system and they go to these places to make the, the, their money in the world system. That's what Corinth is. Corinth is that type of place. It's a seaport that's uh, situated in Greece, uh, in the isthmus of of Corinth. And it had a mixed population, uh, Romans, Jews, and Greeks. So there you go. That's what I just said. It's a place of migration, just like most cities. You go to New York, you see Chinatown. You see, uh, you know, you see Brooklyn. You see... Where the Irish settled, you you know you you read of 
uh, older days in New York, the 40s, 50s, and 60s, and you've seen the Italians and the Irish fighting and just, just crazy, you know, just things that happened, the migration. So that's what you see here. You've got Romans, Jews, and Greeks that have come together in this Greek city. And you can find this, his first visit, Paul's first visit. Of course, this is Paul writing a letter to uh, the the church at Corinth, and he's writing them for instruction. It's a scathing letter. But you'll find the details of his first visit into Corinth in chapter number 18 of the book of Acts. So that's the beauty of Acts. That's why we did a Bible study on Acts is because if you read Acts, you can see when he was in Corinth. You can see when he was in Galatia. You can see when he was at Colossae. You can see when he met Timothy. So all these epistles that we read, you can see the background of what was going on if you have a good knowledge, working knowledge of the book of Acts. So Paul's first visit to Corinth is in Acts 18. Of course, we know he lives there for about 18 months. That's where he worked as a tent maker. And then when he wasn't making tents, he was preaching the word of God. And so many people were saved in Corinth as a result of Paul's uh, ministry. A church was formed in Corinth. And this is one of the letters that Paul wrote to the Christians there, to the church there. Now, when the Spirit of God is at work, you can rest assured that the devil's busy. So in Corinth, what happens is he, Paul started getting a lot of converts, and so they start fighting among themselves. You remember, you got Jews, Romans, and Greeks. They're all getting saved, coming together, and they ain't seeing eye to eye worth a hill of beans. And so this led to divisions and separating of themselves into... Uh, kind of differing parties, differing groups around different leaders. That's where we read of Apollos. Um, he had a following among those that liked clever speaking. Uh, they thought that Paul was not so attractive. They didn't think Paul was an attractive man nor attractive speech. Apollos probably was a much better looking leader. And so some favored Paul and others formed themselves to kind of a Peter group, Peter party. Um, so it's, it's a sad state of affairs. And so what happens is they begin to get overcome by sin. And so Paul hears about all of this and he writes this letter to the Christians in Corinth. Um, they're very proud of their learning. So Paul We'll begin this letter by showing the difference between earthly wisdom and heavenly wisdom. Um, Paul Paul t t wants to teach them that you can be a clever and a smart man and still foolish in the eyes of God. And for the Christian, it's, it's vital, it's imperative that we have our union with Christ and that all of the evilness can be overcome. And our earthly education doesn't amount to a hill of beans when it comes to Jesus. This book or this letter was written in uh, AD 57. So 57 years later. And uh, it's at the end of Paul's three-year ministry in Ephesus. So let's go to... Uh, first, or let's go to First Corinthians chapter one. You'll find a structure in this. You remember in in Second Timothy three, 
16, where Timothy says that the Word of God reproves, corrects, and instructs, you'll see that in this letter. This letter is that outlined to a perfect T, the reproving, the correction, and the instructing. All right, let's go. The reproving, I'll outline it for you real quickly, if you like. The reproving will happen in 1 Corinthians 1 to 1 Corinthians 6. The correction will happen in 1 Corinthians 7 to 1 Corinthians 11. And then the instruction in 1 Corinthians 12 to 1 Corinthians 16. So reproof, correction, and instruction. All right, let's get started. 1 Corinthians chapter number 1. And verse number 1, 1 Corinthians 1, 1, <clears throat> Paul called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ. So these letters, you, you must remember, are written in reverse of our letters. In our letters, we identify ourselves typically at the end. These epistles, um, we Paul identifies himself at the very beginning. He lets them know immediately who it is that's writing this letter. He says, I'm Paul. I'm called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God, Sothenes, our brother. So some had questioned Paul's right to be an apostle. I've, I've talked, to you, talked to you about that because he uh, wasn't alive when, or wasn't saved when Jesus was resurrected. However, you're going to find that on, on two occasions, I believe, uh, well, I, I believe it is salvation, naturally, he saw Jesus uh, resurrected, and then of course he was called up to the third heaven. So two occasions, Paul saw the resurrected Christ, and that's why he calls himself an apostle born out of due time. So immediately, Paul jumps into the issue, and Sothenes, our brother, one one. Um, this is the chief ruler of the synagogue. You read about him in Acts eighteen seventeen, and he's a Christian brother, as Paul refers to him in this verse. Now, here's something that I want to address. We see it in the very first verse. You say, I don't see it. I do, and I'm going to show you. I have been in situations, churches, um, and said, the preacher's preaching right to me. He knows, he's because he knows he's preaching it. He's preaching it. He knows it, and he's preaching it. And they don't like that. Well, the Bible teaches that. When there's an issue, a problem, when there's something happening, we are supposed to deal with it, to preach about it, to address it, to correct it. So these people are questioning his apostleship. Is he sent by God? So in the very first verse, Paul addresses that. Paul called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God and Sothenes, our brother. The very first verse in this letter, he doesn't waste any time. He jumps right on this, and he says the first verse. You know, we like to be all spooky and say, oh, God align that and God align. You know, sometimes God does align it. But sometimes he aligns it through just letting us know and say, hey, deal with this. There you go. There it is. So they were questioning Paul's apostleship. The first verse of the first chapter of the letter that he sends, he says, I'm an apostle. I am an apostle by the will of God, not because of you. And number three, 
also something he's our brother has validated me as being an apostle. So there you go. That's how he starts the letter. Unto the church of God, which is at Corinth, to them that are sanctified in Jesus Christ Jesus, called to be saints with all that are in every place, call upon the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours. So he tells them, you're saints, you're called to be saints, you are saved, you are part of the church of God at Corinth. <coughs> Excuse me. Grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. So he <coughs> addresses them with grace. He wants grace upon them. He wants them to hear this in grace, to learn this in grace. And so let's move forward. I thank my God always on your behalf for the grace of God which is given you by Christ Jesus, that in everything you are enriched by him in all utterance. Uh, let's see, in all utterance and in all knowledge, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you, so that you come behind in no gift waiting for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He said, it's my duty and my job to make sure that you lack in no gift. I want to teach you as good as I can, who shall also confirm you unto the end that you may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. He wants them to stand before the judgment seat clean. God is faithful. Yes, he is. God is faithful by whom you were called unto the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And he gets right into this. Chapter uh, 1, verse 10. Now I beseech you. That is a strong plea. He cannot force them. He cannot make them. But he is pleading very strongly with them. Now I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye all speak the same thing. And that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. So he is encouraging them strongly that there be no divisions. There are divisions. People think church splits just happen. People think church thirds just happen. People think church splinters just happen. This has been going on from the beginning. When you bring different people together with different personalities and different mindsets, and if they are walking in the flesh, then that's going to happen. That's that's the point I'm trying to make. In, in Christ, we're all one. We're all one belief. We're all one personality. We all have his spirit. But in your flesh... When, and that's how you know people, uh, that's how you know a fleshly church and a fleshly people when they there's a bunch of arguing, fussing, fighting, and divisions. It's flesh. So, verse number 11, For it hath been declared unto me, um, it been declared unto me uh, of you, my brethren, by that which of the house of Chloe that are contentions among you. So he calls them right out. He, he calls them right out. He does not waste any time or hedge any bets. Now I say that every one of you saith, I am a Paul, I am Apollos, I of Cephas, and I of Christ. Um, so the phrase, I am a Paul, I of Apollos, I of Cephas, that's the divisions that are referred to in verse 10. Now, um, notice that they boasted that they were of Christ, but they were guilty of the party spirit. They were guilty of divisions. And so um, Paul's admonishing them to be joined together. So I got news for you. God's not for division. 
He's not for it. Is Christ divided? There you go. Is Christ divided? No. One head, one body, one church, composed of all born-again people. Was Paul crucified for you, or were you baptized in the name of Paul? And I like what he says here. He says, I thank God I baptized none of you but Crispus and Gaius, lest any should say that I had baptized in my own name. And I baptized also the household of Stephanus, because I know not whether I baptized any other. For Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with the wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of none effect. So he's saying here that they were splitting hairs over whom baptized whom and who were they were saved under. And Paul's looking at this outfit, and he's saying, I'm glad I ain't baptized none of you. That way you, can, you, you can't attach me to your salvation. I was just the instrument, and I didn't come to you with cunning words. You see, they liked Apollos because of the way he looked, and they liked Apollos because of how cunning and smooth his words were. Paul said, I thank God I didn't baptize near one of you. He said, except Crispus and Gaius and, and the household of Stephanus. He said, that way you couldn't say I baptized in my own name, that I'm trying to bring you to me. I want to bring you to Christ. I didn't come to you with eloquent words. I come to you with the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Verse 18, there's where he goes with that. One of my favorite verses in the Bible. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. It's foolish. It's foolish. It's foolish to somebody that one man would die for the entire world. But unto us which are saved, it is the power of God. The power of God lies in the preaching of the cross. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. So he refers to Isaiah twenty nine fourteen there. So notice what he's attacking. He's attacking worldly wisdom. He's attacking these that look to worldly wisdom for their uh, for their salvation, for who they are. Uh, he's he's looking to those for to that um, that that are putting such stock in worldly education. He's he's jumping right on that. For it is written, verse 19, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? He sure has. For after that, in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. The world's wisdom will never teach you about God. God teaches you about himself through his word and his spirit, working in conjunction together. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. That's how important preaching is. That's how important preaching is. I, I'm not against song services, but you better have an element of preaching every time you get together because God chose foolishness, the foolishness of preaching, in other words, it's foolish to the world. It's folly to the world to talk about a man dying on the cross for the sins of the whole world. It's complete foolishness, but yet that was God's chosen method to save them that believe. For the Jews require a sign, 
He did. If you read the Old Testament, we've been been in it. You know they wanted a sign. Always wanted a sign. And the Greeks seek after wisdom, worldly wisdom, albeit. But we preach Christ crucified unto the Jews, a stumbling block. He was unto the Greeks, foolishness. He is to them. So that tells. There's a lot right there. There's a lot right there. To the Jews, Jesus was a stumbling block. They stumbled over him. They couldn't get past that their king, their savior, was dying on this cross. Not only that, to the Greeks, it's foolish. It's foolish. That's not who we built up as a savior. We built up Zeus. We built up these Roman gods. He doesn't lose. So they looked at the cross as a total loss. But what they failed to recognize was the end wasn't the cross. That was just part of the story. Because three days later, he defeated the ultimate enemy, which was death, which is something that no one else could say. Verse number 24, But unto them which are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men. Yes, it is. How many times have men just made themselves complete fools trying to outwit God? And the weakness of God is stronger than men. For ye see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. We see that. We see that. I mean, in this world, those that this world view very highly... You know, your billionaires, your millionaires, they're not preaching. They're making their money. So God shows, chooses just regular men, fills them with his wisdom, with his power, sets them on fire for the power of God and lets them loose. And they have a greater impact than any billionaire in this world. For you see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men, not many after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty, and base things of the world, and things which are despised hath God chosen, yea, and things which are not to bring to naught things that are are. That no, here's why, here's why, here's why God chose me. And he didn't choose Jeff Bezos, owner of Amazon. Here's why God chose, you know, a, a Billy Graham, for instance. I mean, just a milk farmer's son. Here's why God would choose Charles Spurgeon, who was racked with, um, racked with depression, smoked cigars. Here's why God would chose choose C.S. Lewis. You know who who would have a, as he says, sometimes a pint, because it was their it was a culture, by the way. Here's why God would choose men that this world would never choose. Here's why God would handpick men that the world would never pick. Watch. 
verse 29, that no flesh should glory in his presence. You see, if I can take that man and I can use him, there's no pride, there's no haughtiness, there's no, I achieved this, this great status on my own. There's none of that. I get all the glory in that man. You know, Jeff Bezos wants to build a rocket to go to the moon. I think he has, or he's went to space. He's he's taking the glory himself. He's stealing and robbing the glory of God. But if God fills Sean Brigman up with his power and he can preach the gospel, and then he can supply for his business and he can take care of his family, you know who's going to get glory out of that? Not Sean Brigman. God is. What, what a God. What a God. Verse 29, that no flesh should glory in his presence. But of him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that according as it is written, he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. Paul's being pretty plain right there. Don't glory in your Greek gods. Don't don't glory into some status that you feel like you have uh, elevated to. If you're going to glory, glory in the presence of God and the glory of God in your life. All right, this has been 1 Corinthians chapter number 1. And we will get into chapter number two next time and really pick up steam in 1 Corinthians. I hope you all have enjoyed that first chapter of 1 Corinthians. I love you all. Good night.